0: hello and welcome to the entrepreneur first podcast where we uncover the stories and goals of some of the world's most ambitious founders my name is matt clifford i'm co-founder of entrepreneur first and your host for this episode today we're talking about the challenges of moderating the oceans of content that are published on the internet every day so our guest for this episode is sasha Hako ceo and co-founder of Unitree. Unitree is a company that uses ai to protect people from harmful material online Sasha has an amazing backstory, and she and the team are building something important and valuable at Unitary. So sit back, relax, and tune in to this conversation with Sasha Haker. At Entrepreneur First, we get to meet and work with ambitious individuals who've excelled across an extraordinary range of fields before they decided to become founders. Sasha was pursuing a PhD before she dived into entrepreneurship. So I asked her to tell us a little bit about what she studied.
1: So I joined DF in 2019, pre-pandemic, and um, before that I was um, finishing my PhD and I was sort of in the world of academia. So I did a PhD in looking at black holes, so completely different and sort of irrelevant, and then um, spent a year in America, loved it, and sort of started to realize that black holes were really interesting and sort of really enjoyed that side of thinking about really hard problems. What I realized was that I enjoyed the problem solving and thinking about difficult problems more than I was sort of fascinated by black holes in their, in their own right. And I started thinking, actually, I want to do something a bit more relevant um, and impactful. There's a sort of horrible realization with black holes. and Maybe it's just the fact that they're so, you know, out of this world. That I realized that actually, you know, no matter what I do, no matter how brilliant I could possibly be at Black Holes, I realized that I wouldn't have that much impact at all. And it would take, you know, maybe my whole lifetime or more before anyone realized the impact of anything that I would do, even if I you know, did amazingly. And that sort of felt a bit unsatisfying. So I started thinking that I want to do something more relevant and impactful for the world. And that's what made me start thinking about EF, really.
0: As a fun detour, or fun for me at least, I asked Sasha to tell us what exactly a black hole is.
1: So a black hole is basically an area of space where the matter is so dense that gravity is pulling everything in and there's so much matter that not even light can escape its gravity. So um, gravity causes everything to you know, attract each other and you can imagine something where the gravity is so strong that even light is pulled in. And because we see things by light reflecting off them, we're sort of destined to never be able to see a black hole because any light that bounces off them would would never come back. It would always fall in. And so that's why black holes are called black because they're definitely not a hole, but it looks like empty space because we could never see that part of the universe. And sort of all the work I was trying to do was to figure out, you know, what happens to stuff when it crosses this boundary. Actually, when I first started my PhD, I sort of signed up to work with this person and this like brilliant PhD supervisor. And I sort of thought I was going in researching string theory. And so I spent the summer reading up about string theory and and then sort of in september like just before i started i remember there was this big u-turn and my supervisor said actually there's a really exciting project that's about black holes let's do that instead so it sort of changed and it was just good luck really
0: an interesting fact for everyone listening is that sasha was also featured in a netflix documentary called black holes the edge of all we know i asked her to tell us about what it was like making this film
1: Um, This is so funny. So during my PhD, I was working on this problem called the black hole information paradox. And this is like this big problem in physics. And it's been around for about 40 years or so. The problem came about by Stephen Hawking. And this was sort of a problem that he's been wanting to solve his whole life. And the problem is essentially when something falls into a black hole, um, it appears to disappear forever. Or it seems like it disappears forever. And all information about it is lost. And that fundamentally contradicts what we know about how the world works. So this is a sort of paradox. And so Stephen Hawking discovered this paradox and was desperate to solve it. And so I was very lucky to be part of his team of people trying to solve it. And during that time, this producer and filmmaker in America, who's actually also a physicist and philosopher, decided he was making a um, documentary about some of the work we were doing and also about another physics group, which I didn't even know about at the time. And over the course of actually several years, this camera crew were like flies on the wall um, while we were just working. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't know who's going to want to watch this because it's just us working for like thousands and thousands of hours. Obviously, obviously they did a lot of editing and got rid of a lot of the boring stuff. But it was funny because at the beginning, I remember feeling a bit self-conscious and, you know, I should look nice. And by the end, I didn't, didn't occur to me. But it was amazing because they came with us. We went to like Wales for this sort of physics retreat and they came with us and then we went to America and they were there and they came back to the UK. So they sort of followed us around. And I actually had no idea that it was going on Netflix or that it was, that anything had <laughs> really come of it until suddenly people started messaging me saying, I think I've just seen you on Netflix. And it was really bizarre. And yeah, they've done a lot of editing. So we got rid of a lot, a lot of the boring stuff and hopefully it's quite interesting. <laughs> it's called Black Holes, The Edge of All We Know.
0: I have to say, as an amusing aside, it's it's clearly generated quite a lot of interest in, in your group. And, um, you know, we were joking internally at, from the first the other day because we were looking at our uh, traffic logs. And I think I already told you this, Sasha, but, you know, we were looking at like, what's the most common search terms that lead to people going to the EF website? Unsurprisingly, the number one is people searching entrepreneur first. But actually people searching your name is something like the fourth most common way that people from a search engine come to our website. So I think I think it just shows sort of, Either how, uh, how niche we are or, or just how on, on, on message it is. I feel I have to ask you as well before we move on to sort of the transition into becoming a founder, which is obviously what this podcast is mainly about. But, you know, obviously Stephen Hawking is this iconic figure, probably one of the very few physicists that people who are not in academia know about. You know, what was it like to, to, to work with him?
1: It was brilliant. It was amazing. I was very, very lucky to be part of that. And especially working on something that he felt really passionate about because he was really engaged. And I worked with him for the sort of last few years of his life. And that was a really amazing experience because it, this was his sort of his problem. And he had amazing intuition. And he was a man of very few words, as you can probably imagine, because speaking was a very difficult thing. And so he would sort of say something and then you'd read into it for ages and ages because you know, these few words probably meant so much. Um, So I remember having a few sort of conversations where I'd ask a few questions and he'd give me this very short answer and I had to go go away and try and work out, you know, what did this mean? And usually there was some like very profound insight that often I didn't realise or notice until after we solved the problem. And then I realised that's what he would, he'd already sort of intuited from ages ago. So it was a very like amazing thing. And he was also, you know, up for a good time and had a lot of fun as well.
0: One thing I'm always fascinated by is to understand what drives an individual to become a founder. So I asked Sasha what her transition to entrepreneurship felt like coming from such a deep academic background.
1: In some ways, it did get quite a good training for being a founder. And part of that is trying to take complex ideas and explain them to other people. That's just sort of part of academia and things we were working on and part of a collaboration. And actually, in some ways, I feel like I do that all the time now. Especially as with the sort of CEO hat now, Um, I guess we're a deep tech company and we're solving hard problems with complicated technology. And how can you take that and talk about it to potentially a sales team or a um, customer success team or something like that at a company that their background is not in computer vision or whatever? So I think that's been really helpful. That's probably probably the the main thing. Other than that, is just sort of thinking about you know high thinking about problems and things like abstract um, abstract issues and things like that, which has been, which was interesting and has helped a lot, I think.
0: It does remind me of the sort of things that people say about Jeff Bezos, where it's like, you know, his like warehouse logistics team brought this incredibly complex problem to him and was like explaining it, you know, they had all their experts and be like, no, that's not it. I think it's probably something like this. And then they would go away and annoyingly it would be right.
1: I guess like a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs that of the world are just like amazingly smart people um, and who could just see things differently, get to the nub of an issue faster than anyone else and understand how to solve it. So I feel like that's probably true of a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs and Stephen Hawking as well. I don't, I don't know if he would have had any much interest in entrepreneur- entrepreneurship necessarily. Um, but he actually, he was really interested in sort of doing social good as well. And he was involved in a, quite a lot of more outreachy charity things as well. So he it wasn't, it wasn't just purely black hole focused. I feel like as a founder, I'm in the deep end, learning something totally new every single day, which is something I actually love. And every day is a real challenge. And I love that my learning curve is really, really steep. And it's actually something I I didn't feel so much with academia. The pace, almost my pace of learning was slower, even though you know, I was researching something that was totally new and sort of uncharted territory in some ways. I feel like my pace of learning now is much higher and every day there's this sort of big problem to solve. I love the sort of iterative way that you encounter something, you figure out how to solve it, it goes disastrously. So then you find a new way of solving it and then, you know, and you iterate. I love that part of it. So I think that's quite surprising, the sort of cognitive challenge I find. And thinking about all parts of like company life and sort of company building. How can you, you know, recruit a team and make sure they um, love what they do and love working with you. And that's something I just never really thought about before.
0: I think one thing that really resonates there is that almost the role of a founder is to have to learn a whole set of things very quickly with sort of existential stakes. As If you don't learn them, it's really possible to destroy a company, uh, especially a, a young one, by not being able to do something. I remember that when I first met Sasha at EF, I was interested in whether there was any connection between black holes and content moderation, whether the idea had been a bolt from the blue. So I asked her.
1: So there's no like very direct link between black holes and um, sort of on- online safety. That's definitely true. Thinking, I really want to do something really useful. Um, I want to solve a hard problem that has a lot of impact. And I didn't know exactly what, what I wanted that to be. And so I was meeting lots of different co-founders and potential people I was going to work with and exploring ideas. And I met James there, who's my co-founder. He's a brilliant computer vision expert and has done a lot of work in analysing and understanding images and videos with AI. And so it's, we sort of got on well and came together and thinking about, you know, what can we do together? And one of the things that we came upon was um, this content moderation problem. And essentially we felt that there are, you know, so many videos that people upload to the internet that are harmful in some way. And there's a lot of people involved in the process of removing them, either users on the platform who see something and report it because it's harmful, or they manual moderators who then have to review it themselves. And we felt that a lot can be done just with um, technology to try and automate a lot of that process. So we started getting interested in this problem. And I started reading more about it. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that this is an extraordinarily enormous problem which I just hadn't really conceived before I started looking into it. The more I read about it the more sort of passionately I felt about it that this is a problem that should really be solved. James actually had done some work with Facebook before Entrepreneur First so he was sort of exposed to these different problems and also he was actually a um, community moderator on Reddit so he was quite aware of this what it's like to be a moderator even though he wasn't being faced with really harmful content all the time. He was you know very often taking stuff down, checking content, um, and knew that whole process. So actually with hindsight, it seemed like the perfect problem.
0: Some people when they join EF know exactly what role they think they're going to play in their startup. They know they're going to be the CTO, they know they're going to be the CEO. I wasn't sure how Sasha had found this. so I asked her what her goals were before she walked into EF. I
1: felt that coming into EF, I really had no idea what I was getting myself in for in some ways. I didn't know much about startup world. I didn't really know what a CEO did, what it meant to be a CEO or a CTO. So I came in quite open-minded, I think. I really enjoy speaking with people and talking and communicating ideas. So I felt that maybe being a CEO was the right thing. I'm also not like a, a coder um, in that sense. So I thought maybe I was more suited to a CEO, but I had no real sense of what that meant.
0: Sasha's company, Unitary, uses AI to moderate content online. One estimate is that over a trillion megabytes of data is uploaded to the internet every day, which makes content moderation an extremely challenging task. Unitary detects harmful content using computer vision and graph-based techniques in order to make the internet safer. I asked Sasha to tell us how her business has evolved over the last few years.
1: I feel like it's changing all the time. And I go through these phases of feeling like if I, if we don't solve this tomorrow, then the whole company might die. It's probably a massive overreaction, but there's that feeling all the time that, you know, I get to have these sleepless nights thinking, if I don't figure this out, then, you know, it's really going to be a car crash. And there's that actually that feeling all the time. I guess that never goes away. But the reason for that changes all the time. So right at the beginning, it was sort of working out, this, this actually stayed for a while, but working out what is our product? What is it that people actually want? And I knew that we were f- solving a really hard problem. It wasn't clear to me that we really understood what the first product would be that would really sell and people would really buy. And that was a really hard thing. And I just knew that if we didn't figure this out, then sooner or later, there'll be nothing. I guess that's something that every company goes through, that you have this idea and then you have to work out how do you hit product market fit? What's the thing that you need? So that was more of the challenge, I guess. And now as we've started to kind of, develop a bit we've started to find out what it really is that um, is exciting about what we can do and how we can um, deliver value and now that the stressful thing is execution and making sure that we can go from this small company which is sort of building technology and figuring things out to one that can really deliver and over deliver actually that's a much more different kind of
0: stress as companies evolve so do their founders To keep up with the demands of their customers, their team, their investors, and to grow their company, founders have to embrace the idea of consistently and continually learning and educating themselves. I asked Sasha what her own learning process is like.
1: Definitely trying to talk to people as much as possible and try and find out what they do and and how they do it. But also I just like, if I can, I like to try and witness a brilliant person doing that thing in action and trying to sort of absorb and hope that I'm just by being around them, I can pick up a few nuggets of wisdom and trying to watch someone um, be a great salesperson. And um, sometimes with selling, you know, these companies that sell to startups, you have people sell to you all the time and sort of reflecting on, you know, sometimes I think, wow, I do really want to buy that product, even if it's actually completely irrelevant and useless to, to what we're doing. We don't need it at all. And then I think, wow, that was, that was just a great salesperson. How do they convince me that? And so that kind of thing, I'm trying to think of examples where I've seen something that really worked. And also I've sort of become a bit of a reader of startup books and I love following other startup journeys. Um, something I found so helpful is keeping in touch with founders who are just a couple of steps ahead of me. So maybe have been around for one or two more years, one funding round ahead and trying to ask like, what happened when you when you did this for the first time? And they have their mistakes very like they're very raw still so they're able to give a lot of advice which has been really helpful.
0: Video is just one format of content that can be uploaded online and may contain damaging, violent or offensive messages. Sasha explained the challenges of having to contend with text, pictures, audio, illustrations and more as she builds out the business.
1: So um, today people upload stuff to the internet all the time and that's a great way of communicating with everyone and obviously since the pandemic everyone relies so heavily on the internet for everything but there's also a lot of people who uh, misuse and abuse the internet to upload stuff that's designed to harm people or offend people or even sometimes it could be inadvertent but something ends up in the wrong place so for example there are certain things that just shouldn't be posted on children's platform and what that means is that there's in order to keep Communities healthy and platforms thriving, um, you need to have some way of being able to remove this kind of content. If a platform becomes overrun with harmful content, people will stop using it. Um, And so there's a sort of big incentive from the platform's point of view, but also um, for users as well, to have an environment which is safe. And I, um, you know, remember reading something in a UK government report that several or most terrorist attacks had some link in the last few years to um, online discussion and conversation. And there's often ways where had we been able to pick up things online, you could have stopped potentially or prevented things from happening. So people use the Internet for so many different reasons. And being able to keep on top of the good stuff and also uh, manage the stuff that is maybe less healthy is super important. Scale is, of course, like the biggest issue. But also something interesting is that Internet isn't not localized. So, you know, people can communicate from one place in the world to another. Obviously, that's amazing and you know, brilliant, but also means that people are posting stuff from all over the world and then it can be accessed all over the world. And so you have this challenge where there's so many different languages. And, you know, obviously, that's that's a brilliant thing. But at the same time, even from a manual moderation point of view, in certain parts of the world, it's hard to get enough moderators who speak a given language. So that's a, just a real challenge. So um, Unitary is trying to solve this problem and we're focusing particularly on videos. And so how can we identify automatically that content within a video is um, problematic or contains something um, unsafe in some way? And what we're trying to do is is take a video and be able to automatically say what's inside it. And so sort of label that video um, with what it is. And we're trying, we don't want to be the people who decide if something is safe or unsafe. So we're not the arbiter of what is right and wrong. We just want to give information back to the platforms of what's inside something. to be able to say this video contains X, Y, and Z, or maybe give it some label, and then that platform can match that up against their terms and conditions and decide whether that's acceptable or not.
0: Oh, you know, this is a five-minute video. It has sort of a scene of graphic violence in it or something like that. Exactly.
1: So this snippet of video contains exactly graphic violence and would give it a sort of risk level. So maybe it's a very high risk type of thing. And then um, depending on the platform, although most platforms wouldn't want extremely high risk graphic violence, um, but then they can decide that that's not appropriate for them. So, sort of analysis of this video and any other signals that we can get our hands on, um, we would look at the video's frames and have computer vision models that are understand or analyze the the frames of the video. But we'd also look at things like the audio, um, any additional um, text. Maybe there's titles or um, captions, comments that accompany any given post, and we analyze all of that together and try to understand what is this what is this post about. Um, what is it really saying? And a really big challenge is that different um, contexts can lead to totally different interpretations of the same thing. And so something posted with one caption um, could be totally benign and in another, with another it could be really racist, for example. And so it's really important that you understand, exactly, you have to understand the, the title or the audio in conjunction with the sort of visual signal. So it's a, it's a really hard problem from that point of view.
0: I was also interested whether there was any link between the technical methods that Sasha used during her PhD researching black holes and the techniques that Unitary uses to moderate content online.
1: So I think ultimately, yes, there is a connection in the sort of fundamental way of solving these problems, I think will involve a lot of graph based approaches and understanding how things connect with each other. And that's something very relevant to the kind of maths that I was doing before. But at the level of an individual post or an individual video, we're looking really at the sort of computer vision and the natural language understanding and, and how can we combine these different models. Um, and that's a very sort of machine learning, pure machine learning problem.
0: The internet has had some pretty dark corners ever since it existed. But I was curious to find out why content moderation has gained so much prominence and assumed so much importance in recent years.
1: I mean, I think. It's definitely the case that people have been trying stuff for ages and some things have changed, but there's still a lot that it's still a long way to go. So we know that we can do everything. So one element of it is just that models have advanced. There's better ways of understanding video. There are better computer vision models. The sort of state of the art has just increased Compa- today compared to five years ago. It is just a different a different world even in academia i think that's a really exciting especially in the world of video the state of the art is changing really rapidly there's a lot of progress all the time so that's just really exciting and that means that every year we'll be able to do things that we couldn't ever before and that's one thing you know the actual sort of academic techniques that you might apply but also the kind of things people are worried about is constantly changing and i guess this isn't so much why can we do it now but why is it an ongoing problem but you know the people um, invent new ways of being racist or abusive in some way there's all sorts of different and new ways to be harmful I guess with every new like president there'll be another another way that people will be offensive and so it's constantly changing and so you have to really stay on top of things so I think that's one big issue that we have to grapple with that you can't ever just stop you can't say oh you know we've built this model and now we're done it requires somebody to constantly stay on top of it but I think the another big thing is, even though people have been talking about it for years, the incentives are are changing, and the need and desire to do something about it, about online safety, is really starting to change. And that's partly because of legislation, and like, in a government level, a lot of different countries around the world are starting to implement changes to say that actually it is um, the responsibility of different platforms to make sure they have the right measures in place. And so that's one big driver. And the other is that people are starting to feel uh, more strongly about online safety. And so that's causing a totally different incentive for platforms to do something about it. So I, I've just seen a, a real change in how willing people are to even engage in that discussion. It's platforms who are trying to remove that content. And whether that's because they care about um, their users or they're worried about government you know, legislation, or in a, another um, thing that's really changed recently is advertisers have started um, saying that they're not happy advertising on platforms which have unsafe content. And I mean, this has been a, a thing for a while, but advertisers have started actually boycotting major social networks. Actually, in, there was a big boycott in 2017, so this is not super recent. But the feeling is really getting stronger that if platforms cannot have better uh, moderation practices, then advertisers will um, will stop advertising. And this really starts to affect their bottom line as well as, you know, obviously user safety is really important, but so is revenue. Um, and that <laughs> that changes the dynamic.
0: Content formats are obviously constantly evolving online. Recent years, TikTok videos and Instagram reels hogging in the limelight. white. I asked Sasha what she thinks about these new formats and what challenges they represent.
1: I do think there's this trend that's gone from sort of text to images to video. And now the next thing is live video. And that's what I think is almost the future. All the big social networks are starting to include live video. Now there are all these other live video platforms where people can just interact, you know, in groups and, you know, in a live environment. And I think that's going to be the next thing. And that's an enormous challenge in terms of moderating that sort of quickly and also without spending a ton of money. That's it. It's going to be a real challenge. But that's definitely where the world's going, I think. So I, I definitely see live video as a as a big one. I also see audio in itself as something that's taking off. Obviously, there's a clubhouse and things like that, but podcasts, obviously, it's a good thing. And just things happening really quickly in the limited time people have to react to things. And that's definitely a challenge of live video. Someone can put something online and then go from one minute something being totally safe to then totally unsafe in no time at all. And because there's, people can upload stuff all the time and quickly... You have this real, it's sort of an arms race, and it's a real challenge to get there quickly enough. So, I think just speed and length of videos, things are, it's hard to tell if things are getting longer or shorter. Obviously, TikTok is a short form video, but I know that they're like increasing or might increase the length of videos people can put up. And so, there's a, there's a trend in both directions, I think.
0: It strikes me that one of the big challenges is that in the last decade, big tech has gone from being broadly. You know, the hero industry, it's actually still quite popular with the general public. If you look at polls, it's definitely become a bit of a, you know, whipping boy for politicians and regulators around the world. And, you know, there's a lot more suspicion and sort of... um, I would say sort of suspicion by default of some of the big tech platforms in particular, both in the US, but, you know, in Europe. And I think almost the changing sort of political and regulatory context, if you're a a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter or whatever, that's got to also make this a very charged issue and environment.
1: For sure. It is continuing to change and people are feeling more and more strongly about it. And so there's a lot of pressure, I think, for um, people to act um, and react when things go wrong and not just sit back and um, you know, put the blame on the user, for example. So it's getting a bigger and bigger issue. And, and certainly, um, as you said, reg- regulation is coming in, which is going to force a lot of change. And I think it's going to be really hard for a lot of platforms to be able to react to that regulation because there are going to be very big changes enforced.
0: The vision of a safer internet is a compelling one. So I asked Sasha to elaborate on her plans for the company.
1: So we're just working like furiously hard on the tech side, trying to build our tech so that it's really scalable. That's our biggest challenge. How can we scale up from millions to tens of millions of videos that we can process every day and keep our models accurate? How can we? Another big thing is how can we increase the scope of what we're able to um, understand in terms of languages, different languages that we can identify, and different types of content that we can and we can classify. So that's like a big thing on on the tech side. And so hopefully with that, that will enable us to um, start to look at a huge amount of more content. And we also are hopefully going to be starting to work with several of the different social networks, big and small, over the next year to really try and tag and flag up content that is inappropriate in some way.
0: I also asked Sasha to share her views on what advice she would give to a new person entering the world of entrepreneurship for the first time.
1: A good question. Um I think there are so many things I think if I'd known that would have been would have been easier. like brilliant piece of advice I was given, so I can't clean this. It's my own actually um Ian Hogarth told me this. He said that one of your jobs, I don't even know if you if you realize this is a device, but I internalized this it's like, oh my gosh. Um one of he said one of your jobs is, as a CEO is when trying to sell into a company is to um sort of make such good friends with somebody internally that they feel that they're obliged to sort of ring you up and let you know if the deal's going wrong. And that really stuck with me. And I just think that's so important that there've been so many times when you think something's going the way you want it to in a sort of sales situation, and then it doesn't, and you don't really understand why. And having somebody who just likes you as a person and feels bad if you know they, they don't end up doing what they said they would. And so they feel that you know they owe it to you to tell you what's going on helps so much. And that's something that I think is actually super important.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of the Entrepreneur First podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Sasha's story and her experience building unitary so far. Join us next time when I'm going to be speaking to André Laurenceau, co-founder and CEO of DiviGas, and Leon Farrant, co-founder and CEO of Green Lion. They'll both be telling us about how technology can help alleviate some of the impact of the climate crisis. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about Entrepreneur First, visit joinef.com. Big thanks to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the podcast. And thank you for listening. Speak to you next time.
1: fruition.